This morning, as we go to prayer, I'd like to read a few words from Psalm 9. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the people with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in a time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Father, this morning we do seek you because you are our hope in this day in which our world, at least the world in, that we're familiar with here in the United States and Canada, is turning more and more away from knowledge and belief in the God of heaven, the God of Bible, and turning more and more to various kinds of religious systems and materialism. Father, we are in great need of your wisdom, your direction, your empowerment, that we might live for you, that we might shine as lights in a dark world. Father, I pray that even today, as we study your word and as we fellowship together, there will be a polishing of the mirrors of our lives that we might better reflect the glory of Christ, not only to the world around us, but to one another, to our families and our friends. Father, we're grateful for your faithfulness. And as we study this uh, passage of Scripture, we see, your, again, your faithfulness and what it is you expect of your people. And Lord, I pray we will learn what it is that you would have for each of us individually to know and to apply in our own lives. And Lord, I ask you to bless in the services of this morning, uh, the concurrent service and the Sunday school classes, that you will be magnified and that you will be glorified. For it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'd like to begin reading with the first verse. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. As I mentioned to you last week, this is one of the most powerful chapters in the whole Old Testament because it really boils the gospel particularly what it is, how it is to live for God down to a nutshell. 
and we'll, we'll be looking at uh, the specific verses which you already know very well as we move through this uh, particular chapter. Samuel is the prophet of God. Samuel is the man that God has called to, to lead Israel during this time between the end of the Shofatim, the era of the judges, and the beginning of the monarchy. Samuel is the last judge of Israel, and he is one of Israel's greatest prophets. And here he has come uh, with the word of the Lord to Saul. And he reminded Saul that it was the Lord who commanded him, that is Samuel, to anoint Saul as king over Israel. It wasn't because Saul was a great and powerful leader. It wasn't because Samuel decided, oh, well, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, let's pick Saul. It was because God had chosen Saul to be king over Israel. Therefore, his foundation, the foundation of his reign, rested upon Yahweh, upon God himself. That being true, Samuel is saying to Saul, you're obligated to listen to the word of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. He uses the standard prophetic introduction. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Wherever you read that in the Old Testament, that is the introduction to the Lord's words being given through the prophet, whoever the prophet may be. In this case, Samuel. And Samuel made it clear that the command that he was about to give was not something he thought up. He didn't sit down and think, hmm, what shall I tell Saul? He had God's word. God had come to him however God had spoken to him, whether audibly, in a dream, in a, in a vision, however, he had gained the word of the Lord. And so he came to Saul with these words. And the words, of course, as Samuel reported them, was that Saul was to be responsible for carrying out the long-promised vengeance of the Lord upon the nation Amalek. Now, if we read this passage without any background in the Old Testament, we think, oh, you know, God's just picking a name out of here and saying, we're going to blow these people off the map. Now, why is God doing this? Well, I think we need to remind ourselves of the background. So, let me turn back to the 17th chapter of Exodus. In the 17th chapter of Exodus, we have Israel coming out of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea miraculously. They are in the Sinai Peninsula, and they're headed on towards the place called Sinai, Mount Sinai. And on their way, they have this encounter, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 17 of Exodus. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. They then took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner, the Lord is my standard. And he said, The Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now, this was God's vengeance upon Amalek, but of course it had not been accomplished yet. Amalek was in existence still, obviously, at the time of Saul. Let me read God's reminder that was in, uh, written in Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning at verse 17. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, this is after the law has been given at Sinai, and Moses is giving the second law, as it were, in the book of Deuteronomy. And he says this in Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at the rear, at your rear, when you were faint and weary, for he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven you must not forget. So this is the word that God gave to Moses to give to the people for the time when they finally were settled in the land. Now they weren't settled in the land yet. They wouldn't be settled into the land till after, of course, Moses was dead. And the leadership a mantle had transferred on to Joshua. And Joshua would lead them in the victory and the settlement of the land. And so now that has occurred. And not only has it occurred, hundreds of years have passed since that time. And so God is in effect saying, you have forgotten. And now I'm reminding you, and Saul is my messenger to carry out the task which I ordained those hundreds of years before. The question is, who is Amalek? Who is Amalek? Of course, as you read through the Old Testament, you come across many names of many peoples, and uh, they're truly foreign names to us in so many ways. And today, the vast majority of those names do not exist except in the Bible or history books because those peoples have either been destroyed or they've merged together into a larger grouping of people simply called Arab today. We find, however, if we go back to Genesis, and we won't do this, but in the 36th chapter of Genesis, we find that Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Now remember, Esau was Jacob's brother. So Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. And Jacob is the nation from whom Israel comes, and through Esau will come many nations, one of which is Amalek. So they were cousins. So many of the people named in the scripture in the Old Testament were related to the Israelites. It's amazing how that was. You read about the Edomites and the Ishmaelites and the Midianites and all these other ites, and so many of them were actually related to Israel. But we read in the passage in Deuteronomy that the reason that Amalek made the attack that they did was that they did not fear Yahweh. Well, it actually says Elohim there, but the meaning, of course, is Yahweh, the God of Israel. The Amalekites rejected the worship of Yahweh, and they warred against Israel on many occasions. The event that we read about in chapter 17, where the Amalekites came upon the Israelites as they were going up towards Rephidim was particularly despicable 
because the Israelites had just gained their freedom. They had been hundreds of years enslaved in Egypt. Now they have come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea miraculously. They're marching down uh, the uh, eastern shore of the Sinai, and, and here they are. I mean, they're a bunch of ex-slaves. This is not a military force. And the Amalekites attack them. This warlike tribe of nomads attacks them. They had just gained their freedom. And they were on their way to this history-transforming encounter with God at Mount Sinai. So what can we see behind this? What can we see behind this? Well, behind it we have to see spiritual warfare. We have to see that Satan is aware that God is moving his people and God is moving his people to begin to fulfill prophecy and Satan wants to prevent that at all costs. So Satan inspires the Amalekites who already have a natural hatred towards Israel to attack them at their weak point, to bushwhack them in the wilderness, if you will. Now, we read in the passage in Exodus that God enabled Israel to defeat Amalek that day. As Moses held the rod of God above his head and Aaron and Shur supported his hands and Israel defeated Amalek, Amalek was not destroyed. They were simply defeated and driven off. The, the nation was not you know, wiped out. Uh, they would continue, and they are continuing on down until the time that we are reading about here in this particular passage of Scripture. 400 years, nearly 400 years, after the time they had laid that ambush for Israel <clears throat> in the wilderness, God is calling upon Saul to fulfill God's promise that Amalek was to be destroyed. Why would God say that? about a people who are not the people who had ambushed Israel in the wilderness. These are several generations later. God, of course, knew that they would never turn to him. The same reason that God allowed the Amorites who lived in the land to eventually be defeated. So God had pledged war against Amalek from generation to generation, and he had said that one day they will be blotted out. I think there are some important truths in this story that I'd like to highlight for us. Firstly, God never remembers the sin and the evil deeds for which we have repented and which we have confessed to Him. We're told that those sins are buried in the depths of the sea. They are cast as far away as the east is from the west. But we also know from Scripture that He never forgets the sin that has been committed for which no repentance has ever been offered and which, for which no confession has ever been made. And that helps us to understand some passages in Scripture that are somewhat enigmatic otherwise. Let me just read to you, it's not on the outline, but a, a passage of Scripture that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." We have to understand, of course, that God is always just. God is not capricious. 
God is not vengeful in the sense that men and women are vengeful. When God says, I will visit the iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation, we have to understand that it does not mean that God is, is chastising the children for the sin of the father. Because the scripture otherwise says that that shall not happen. Well, the point is that this comes because of God's foreknowledge. God knows that the generation after generation after generation will not turn to him. That they will reject him. That is why the, the, the curse goes on one generation after the other after the other. That is why it's so important that, that sin, the, the role of sin in, in a family or in, in a group of people be broken and shattered so that the direction of that people can be changed and not be held to the perpetration of evil continuously. A second truth that we find here is that God is extremely patient. He had given the Amorites who lived in Canaan and in Transjordan 400 years. In fact, we read that back in Genesis when God said to Abraham, I will give this land, but the Amorites will be given 400 years in which to turn and to repent. God, of course, knew they wouldn't, but he gave them the time anyway before they would be destroyed by Israel, before they moved in to conquer the land and to occupy it. And so he gives the Amalekites a similar length of time. It's not quite 400 years, but he gives them several hundred years in which to change their way, which he knows they will not do, before he sends Saul to destroy them. And thirdly, related to this, as I have implied already, although this, the, the Amalekites of Saul's generation are not the Amalekites that bushwhacked Israel at Rephidim because we're 300, 350 years later, it is the hatred of God that was in that initial group that attacked Israel that was perpetrated from generation to generation to generation until the generation in the days of Saul were as wicked as the generation that attacked Israel at Rephidim three and a half centuries before. They were therefore unredeemed and unredeemable because they would not turn from their wicked way. Fourthly, and I think this is a, a very important concept. God was willing to give Saul yet another opportunity to demonstrate obedience. Although Saul had failed God on several instances, and we've noted some of them so far, God gave him yet another opportunity to demonstrate that he had actually learned something from his past mistakes. So what we find here is that God, uh, Saul is given by God an extremely clear command. He says, you are to utterly destroy every person of the Amalekites and every single living thing that belongs to the Amalekites, the sheep and the goats and the cattle and the camels and the donkeys and all the rest. And of course, we know, you know, somebody <clears throat> from the non-Christian world reading this would say, yeah, look, God is blaming the camels and the donkeys for this too. No, God isn't blaming the camels and the donkeys for anything. God is simply saying that they are to be totally, completely obliterated as if they didn't even exist on this planet. Don't you also think that not only he's not blaming, he's wanting, like you said, to curse Saul? Oh, yes. If he's going to follow to the ladder. <laughs> right. In every opportunity, there is <clears throat> a test, is there not? And Saul has yet another test before him, and certainly that is part of it. And not only for him, but for all of Israel. 
the men that were with him anyway, the 210,000 soldiers. But the question, of course, that we can ask is, why is God so extreme here? Why doesn't God just have the, you know, the soldiers killed, you know, the, the bad guys? Certainly their wives and their children are not bad, and certainly the animals aren't bad. So why, why does God act in such an extreme way from our perspective, of course? Well, first of all, as I see it, the action is to provide a warning, to provide a warning to other nations that God and his people are to be feared. You don't dare turn against God and his people. Because we remember in, in Exodus it said that Amalek did not fear the Lord. And that's why he attacked Israel. The fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. It is not the result of wisdom. It is the beginning of wisdom. Secondly, to remind Israel, because Israel constantly needs to be reminded, just as you and I do, that the fear of the Lord is a life and death matter. It is not something that we can afford to be complacent about. And in our day and age of living complacency, it's easy to do that. And to think that so many other things are more imperative and so important right now. And that to walk in the ways of the Lord are, well, you know, that'll happen when I get old enough. When I retire, I'll walk in the ways of the Lord, you know. But now I'm too busy earning a living and cutting corners and, you know, cheating the IRS and whatever else I need to do in order to survive. <clears throat> Therefore, I'll walk with the Lord later. No, it needs to happen now. It needs to happen yesterday. Thirdly, to eliminate any temptation that Amalek might provide for Israel to become apostate. Because if Israel were to see that this nation which had done wickedly got off scot-free, then why should Israel be worried if God says, don't do this because this will happen to you? Well, they, nothing happened to them, so why should we be concerned? The question becomes now, what part of this command did Saul not understand? Well, Saul started out right. He sent out a call for troops. He, he sent messengers through all the land saying, all of those you are willing, uh, all of those you have weapons and some battle experience come to me. We have a job to do. And they met down at Dalaim. Uh, this region, you see the word Negev here. That really basically just means Southland. That's this region here. It goes up to about where Ziklag is up here and south down to beyond the map here. It's this region in the northern part of the Sinai. Here's Beersheba, which is a very important uh, sort of standard southern boundary of Israel, where Abraham had built a well, well, many, many centuries before. Telaim is located right about down in here. It's about 30 or so miles south of Beersheba. It was just a little village where they gathered down here to launch their attack against the Amalekites who, who dwelled through this region. Uh, they were a nomadic people. They herded animals, as you see. They had large her herds of cattle and sheep and goats and camels and donkeys, as were most of these people. Most of these people were primarily nomadic, even though many of them did have cities where they lived. And, of course, when it says in this passage here that they laid, got ready to attack the city of the Amalekites, you must under understand city in the sense of the general area of the dwelling. They didn't have a city as we think of a city. They dwelt in nomadic villages. The Amalekites were more nomadic even than the Edomites and the Moabites were. And so the, this region is a, is a semi-arid region. It's a steppe land kind of 
climate and vegetation. It's not true desert, but it's very dry, but there are grassy areas in which cattle and sheep and so forth can be maintained. It's, it's fairly open land, even though as you get down in here, there are some large, um, they look like craters, they're called moktesh. What it is, is, is an eroded anticline, I don't know if you remember your geology, but upwarped strata, which have been eroded off the top, create a kind of an inverted shape. It looks like a crater. <laughs> looks like a crater, but it has nothing to do with volcanoes. And there's a couple of those down in here in the land of the Amalekites, and it's, it's kind of forbidding looking country, but uh, it was good enough for them to um, survive in. And so Saul called his troops together, and we discover in the passage of Scripture that 210,000 men gathered together to join with Saul. And so he led this army down or through the land of the Amalekites. And when he got there, he discovered that living among the Amalekites were the Kenites. We read that in this passage of Scripture. The uh, Kenites, the word Kenite means metal worker or smith. The Kenites were living amongst the Amalekites at that particular time, but not only there, in a few other places, but particularly in that region. Now, who were the Kenites? Well, if you remember back to Moses' father-in-law, Moses' father-in-law was named Jethro. And we're told in Scripture that Jethro was a Kenite. He, you know, he's also called a Midianite, just like somebody can come here from Japan and be living in America and be called an American because he's living in America, but he's Japanese by ancestry. Jethro was living in Midian, but he was not a Midianite by blood. He was a Kenite, which is a different ethnic group and could just simply be a term replied, or applied to somebody of that occupation with no ethnicity even being attached. Whatever the case was, this was a, a part of the world down here where copper ores are still found today. And so it was a good place for smiths to be living, where the ores were available for them to smelt and to produce copper and uh, bronze implements and weapons and tools and so forth. Jethro had a son by the name of Hobab, who was Moses' brother-in-law. And we know in Scripture that Hobab was the eyes of Israel in the wilderness, although rather reluctantly so. Let me turn to Numbers chapter 10, reading at verse 29. Then Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, Ruel was another name for Jethro, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do you good. For the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather I will go to my own land and relatives. But he, Moses, said to him, Please do not leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. So it will be, if you will go with us, it will come about that whatever good the Lord does for us, he will do for you. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord, with the ark of the Lord, of the covenant of the Lord, journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place. The implication there, and it's stated elsewhere, is that Hobab relented and Hobab did go with them and he did lead Israel in the wilderness. So the Kenites went with Israel. They traveled with Israel and they lived amongst Israel and there's 
other passages that make this statement valid. Let me read an, uh, just one verse to you from Judges 1.16. It says, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of the Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. So the Kenites traveled with Israel. And towards the end of the occupation, the Kenites tended to gravitate further and further to the south, and they ended up in the southern part of Judah, and then ultimately, as we see, clear down in the land of the Amalekites, living amongst the Amalekites at that particular time. Now Saul knew enough of the history of his people to, re to remember the role that the Kenites had played. Therefore he warned them. He said, we're going to attack, so move yourself out of the way. Get out of the way because we're not going to be able to distinguish one from the other. You will all be enemies in our sight. And this has been a factor of history on so many occasions. Uh, just to remind you of the event known as the First Crusade. The First Crusade, which was launched at the end of the 11th century when, quote, Christians from Europe went over to try to capture the Holy Land from the infidel, when the Crusaders arrived in the part of the world where you had Turks and Christians that were uh, not of the Western stripe and Jews all living together, because they tended to dress alike, the Crusaders made no distinction. They just butchered whoever they found, whether they were Muslim or Christian or Jew. Uh, you know, you dress funny, you die. You know, that's their rule. And I think that this is this fear that uh, Saul has here. I can't distinguish a Kenite from an Amalekite, so get out from amongst them so that we don't end up killing you too. So we warned them to remove themselves from danger. And it's interesting, as we read in uh, verse 6 there, that Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. What is the reason he gives for, for giving in this warning? He says, For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. Saul wasn't totally ignorant of the past of his people. He knew something of the history of God's working in Israel. But what is so profound here, to me at least, is the contrast that we see between Kenite and Amalekite. The Kenites had loved God's people, and the Kenites had helped God's people. Therefore, the Kenites were saved. The Amalekites had hated God and his people. The Amalekites had attacked God's people. Therefore, the Amalekites were destroyed. Living together in the same place, Kenites and Amalekites. And yet, the distinction between the two was as sheep and goats, at least in this world system. Obviously, God still judges every individual soul individually, not collectively. And so the degree to which each individual Kenite turned in faith to the Lord would be, of course, his eternal condition. But at least in this earth, uh, the fact that historically the Kenites had been allied with Israel allowed them to be saved, whereas the Amalekites would be been enemies of Israel, were destroyed. Obviously, in those days, there wasn't probably any way by which Saul could send a secret message to every Kenite saying, okay, you get out of the land real quietly because we're going to attack. The message 
got to the Kenites, but certainly some Amalekites heard it too, and thus they were warned that Israel was near and prepared for battle, but of course it didn't do them any good. Israel shattered the Amalekites in their attack. The scripture tells us that they were routed, that they were chased all the way from Havilah, the location of which is unknown, over towards the wilderness of Shur as one goes over to Egypt. So they were chased in this direction towards Egypt. This is the wilderness of Shur up in here. They were chased this direction over here towards the west. And all along the way, of course, they were slaughtered as they fled. Saul destroyed the Amalekites with one exception. And, of course, he saw it as a minor exception. God, of course, saw it differently. He kept the king Agag alive. Of course, when we read the word king here, we need to understand it probably means chieftain. I mean, these were nomadic peoples. Uh, they didn't have a king in the sense that Saul would become king in Israel. And so Agag is kept alive. In addition, we discover rather than carrying out God's command to the letter, which was to kill every single animal that was possessed by these people, the army and Saul himself decided to keep the best of the livestock. Obviously, they were thinking of earthly profit. Their concern was not eternal profit. The Amalekites were a spiritual blight on the land. And God had commanded that everything associated with them be destroyed so that Israel would learn the lesson of how extreme it was to not follow God. The horror of facing eternal life or eternity without life in God should be so great that it supersedes everything else in this life. They should learn the lesson of how tragic it is to turn from God and to remove, as a result, every wit of the cancer of this people from the land. Jesus said, what? It, well, yes, the Bible says that, but it can't really mean that. It's got to mean this. And you know, sometimes you wonder, why, why, why would people want to warp the scripture so that it will envelop or allow them to live the way they want to live and still be okay? I would think they would want to know what has God really said because he's the one who's in charge. And he's the one who determines heaven and hell. And because we modify the scripture to make it say something that's not as evil or, 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 or as harsh as we want, uh, you know, we, we want it to say something more gentle. Well, that doesn't help because God is the one calling the shots, not we. It isn't some, some pope or, or, or some prophet or, or somebody else who's calling the shots, it's God. We need to know what God has said. But Israel wasn't asking that question. They weren't saying, now, did God really mean kill them all? Oh, he can't mean that because there's nothing wrong. The animals didn't do anything bad anyway. They never attacked us. And it's such a beautiful animal. How could we possibly just waste it? They didn't grasp the truth of the fact that spiritual lessons are more important than physical objects than temporal objects. It's more important for us to lose, to, to lose something that we might consider valuable to gain a spiritual truth than it is to keep that and not get the truth. 
<laughs> now it says they did kill all the despicable animals. All the animals that had one leg shorter than the other and a big black blotch on their white fur, or, you know, animal that had a muzzle on cricket or whatever else. They killed them all. Now why would they do that? Because they understood God's command. God said, wipe them all out. Well, okay, let's kill a whole bunch of them and maybe God will be satisfied. You know? Maybe God won't notice that we kept a few. Obviously, then it's just rationalization. They're rationalizing their lust for wealth. After all, didn't they do most of what God commanded? Let's read on, beginning at verse 10 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. I mean, just though that one verse is, I mean, there's so much theology in there. It's, it's just amazing. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your, your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated? Why then did you not obey, obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? This is such an important passage of Scripture. There are so many truths in this that apply to us today in understanding that when God speaks, He's not saying, do whatever you feel like. If, if you don't mind, would you do this for me? When God speaks, he's to be obeyed to the letter, to the last lamb, as it so would be in this passage. And yet we find that Saul is going to say, but they're all dead but one guy, and all the animals are dead but, but these few that the people insisted on keeping, so it's not my fault. <laughs> and yet what is the judgment? In verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? You, you think about that and you think, how many people are there in the world today who will say, but God, I went to church every day of my life. I, I put money in the offering plate. I even attended Sunday school. Well, I mean, just a little deal that I didn't ever really repent of my sins. Well, I mean, you know, what's the big deal about that? I was there. Hmm. And that, of course, is the the essence behind the ultimate pronouncement that God would give through Samuel 
that we read over in, in verse 22 that to obey is better than sacrifice. And I don't want to spoil the whole thing before we get there, but, but we live in a day and age when people are doing a lot of, quote, sacrificing. And I don't mean of animals, but they are doing this and doing that, and they're trying to please God by this, that, and the other thing without doing what God basically requires. <coughs> it's like if you read, you haven't had a chance to read Peter Kopp's email, but in there he's talking about one of the princes of the country of Swaziland, who is the head of one of the ministries in the government there, who is a professed Christian, although it's well known that he womanizes and, and is, has a real problem with alcohol. And, and, of course, his prayer is that this man will really, truly meet God. Because people can profess to be obedient to God without being obedient to God. And God is not food, of course. Because there's so many important things I'd like to pick up next week, we don't have enough time to develop this. Because there's a specific thing concerning the nature of God we need to deal with, first of all, where it says, God says, I regret that I made Saul king. How can God regret anything. Yes. Um, when you were talking about Jethro, why in various parts of the Bible does it take one person and give him so many different names? I mean, I know it's not to confuse us, but what's the purpose? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but why did they do that? Why did they do that? Um. <laughs> Moses, of course, is God's author of the whole Pentateuch, the first five books. And Moses is alternatively using what was already given to the man by his own people, these different names. So Rule and Jethro are names. One is actually thought to be a title. His name was Jethro, but Rule was a title that was imposed upon him, sort of as like chieftain of the clan or something like that. So usually when you find a name double names for one person. It's sort of like Jacob was Jacob until God changed his name to Israel because he was now to be the prince. And, and so Jethro is the name of the man. He is viewed also called sometimes by his title, Rule. And as I mentioned to you before, although he was a Kenite, he lived in the land of Midian and therefore is often referred to as a Midianite also. So we have to, that, that's why the scripture has to be studied, as I realize you all know this, but has to be studied always in context and entirely. So many denominations have been begun because they lifted one little verse out of some place and said, now this verse says this, therefore nobody else has been doing it right, we're going to do it right without reading the whole of scripture to see how that verse fits in. So I, I, think, I think that's important. But it does seem like sometimes, doesn't it? It's just there to keep us confused. Ooh, now wait a minute. <laughs> And, of course, there are times also when the names of the people are interchanged. Like Midianite and Ishmaelite were often interchanged. When we know Midian was uh, one individual and Ishmael was another individual. The Midianites, however, seemed ultimately to be kind of absorbed into the Ishmaelites. And, of course, today the Arabs all consider themselves to be the descendants of Ishmael. And Ishmael and Abraham built the Kaaba, that big cube there in Mecca, originally. They rebuilt it, I should say, because Adam built it in the first place. This is what they believe. And that, of course, <laughs> uh, is therefore the center of their worship in Islam. Even God, though, has more than one name. And 
my understanding is that it's part of the manifold grace so that we would just, you know, it brought, doesn't it broaden our, our vision of, of God? So for a person to have, even Abraham had two, lots of people in the Bible have more than one name. Or they, or it's like God changes their name at a point in their life when something changes spiritually. So I don't, that's not actually unusual. No, it's not unusual. And I, I think you're exactly right. There are multiple names of God in the Bible simply because how can we fathom who He is? And there aren't as many names given in the Bible to even explain who He is altogether. You know, Jehovah this, Jehovah that, or Yahweh this, Yahweh that. Just an expression of, of His nature as best as we can begin to understand it in human terms. And for example, as next week we're going to be looking at this word regret. How is it that God can regret something? In, in the King James Version, the word is repent. How can God repent? You know, well, we have to understand that this is written from the human point of view. And so we, we view it from that particular nature.